Hello, and welcome to the first ever crossover episode of Tech Swamp. And that's right, we're joining you from one central location with all your US and EU team members and hosts for the final episode of 2021. It's pretty exciting. Uh, and we're going to be joined by Graham Dufault, original friend of the pod and senior director for public policy for a 2022 global policy look ahead. Uh, we'll be talking through potential regulations and policy and the impact they could have on our small business members in the app economy. Uh, and of course, we still have our host and friendly membership he- team here today. Um, hey, Brad. Why, hello there. For the last time in 2021, <laughs> Caitlin, what's up? This is my final membership chillin' for 2021. <laughs> Wild. Um, and I'm Alex. And I'm your greetings from Brussels host, Morgan, joined by our EU team and host. Hi, Anna. Hello. And hi, Niels. Hey, everyone. Joining Graham, we'll chat with Stephen Tulip, UK Membership and Engagement Manager, so he can fill us in on UK happenings and predictions for next year's policy landscape. But before that, we're going to talk tech history and the top global tech headlines. December 22nd, 1882, 139 years ago, the first electric Christmas tree lights were invented. They were invented by Edward Johnson, an associate of Thomas Edison, who created the first set of string lights two years prior. The string lights Johnson created were specifically for Christmas trees and contained 80 individual bulbs. <laughs> yeah, and fun fact, the, the light bulbs were the size of walnuts and colored red, white, and blue, so not really your typical Christmas colors. Um, but these light bulbs eventually replaced the use of wax candles on trees, which sounds pretty dangerous. <laughs> but uh, due to the general public's mistrust of electricity, Christmas tree lights didn't really take off until the early 1900s. And the rest is tech history. And now on to bites and brews. Anna? Brad, Caitlin, and Niels, what's going on in the news? (laughs) On her visit to Washington, D.C., European Commission Executive Vice President Margrethe Vestager announced a joint EU-U.S. technology competition policy dialogue. In their statement, the Commission, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, and the U.S. Department of Justice said this dialogue will reinforce their longstanding cooperation with a particular focus on the fast-evolving technology sector. The joint dialogue will include high-level meetings as well as regular staff discussions concerning shared competition enforcement and policy issues arising in technology markets, rather than strict harmonization of rules between the two blocks. In some end-of-year United States Congress news, it's looking like we're going to see some crucial legislation passed, as well as some temporary changes to the Senate rules when it comes to passing said legislation. The NDAA, or National Defense Authorization Act, passed the House of Representatives earlier this month, and the Senate is expected to follow suit, but not without a little political theater, of course. (laughs) You might have heard us discuss a Senate procedure called the filibuster, which requires a 60-vote minimum rather than a simple majority, and how there has been back and forth on whether to eliminate it entirely. Well, earlier this month, Senate Democrats and Republicans voted to eliminate the filibuster for one vote so that the NDAA can pass a little more seamlessly. We can expect the Senate to pass this bill before heading home for the holidays, but we will have most of the up-to-date information on the path of this legislation in the show notes. The UK government said it will begin to phase out 2G and 3G mobile networks by 2033 as the race to 5G continues. 
officials and mobile network operators agreed to the phase-out, the outdated infrastructure and said the move will free up existing spectrum to increase the speed of the UK's 5G deployment. The UK government also unveiled plans for £50 million of spending on telecoms research and development projects. The Biden-Harris administration is cracking down on surveillance tools and is hoping to make the impact international. The U.S. is currently planning a global push to restrict the sale and or access of surveillance tools to authoritarian regimes. It's not clear what countries plan on joining the efforts at this time, but the initiative would likely involve several U.S. allies in the EU and aims to put rules in place for exporting surveillance tools to countries that would use them to suppress human rights. This comes after years of reports that China is using surveillance technology and augmented intelligence that is leading to widespread human rights violations, including genocide. China has denied all allegations and decried the upcoming summit where leaders plan to discuss the details of the agreement. The European Parliament's Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee, IMCO, and the Council of the EU have both adopted their positions on the Digital Markets Act, a key file for appmakers and innovators across the globe. This is a hugely important step for this legislative file, and we're going to continue to advocate for a regulatory approach that avoids unintended consequences and benefits all stakeholders in the global app economy. More details can be found in our statement that we're going to link to in the show notes. And that's all for Bison Brews. And as we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by Graham Dufault for a 2022 Global Policy Look Ahead. Yes, and Graham is our Senior Director for Public Policy and is ready to talk us through some of the major happenings that could impact our global membership in the year ahead. We'll also be joined by the Noah of All Things UK, Stephen Tulip, for some of his insights on UK happenings. So with that, Graham, thank you for joining us for the last pod of 2021. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be joined by the knower of all things. I know. It's pretty exciting. Um, I think it's going to be a good one. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, And I think we should just dive right in. So, Graham, you're joining us to talk about some of the major themes for 2022 um, and how these themes could impact policy. And it's worth noting that these themes are ones we see on a global scale, not just policy trends that we're seeing here in the U.S. or in Brussels. And that's right. We were wanting to take a step back, take a look at policy themes that impact our members in every country. Things like COVID-19, data privacy rules that impact innovators beyond the borders in which they're created, and the role of platforms, um, the role of platform play in the way our members do business. So I think it only feels right to start with COVID-19. Uh, We have seen tech step up in a lot of ways during the pandemic, whether it's educational apps to help parents with at-home school or telemedicine tools connecting patients to their physicians. The pandemic has highlighted a ton of gaps that needed to be filled. So how will the pandemic continue to impact policy reactions globally? This is a a great question. And I think you're right that, you know, uh, tech-driven platforms and mobile software makers really stepped in to fill a bunch of gaps as people needed to start accessing work, accessing uh, school, and ac- accessing healthcare from home. And probably the, the first thing I think of is the way that we pivoted so quickly to providing digital medicine and the way our member companies, so many of our member companies, um, started really uh, playing a, an even more important role than they did before the pandemic 
in the continuum in the continuum of care, and that's true across the globe. It's not just in the United States, but the U.S. has a major challenge uh, with digital health because the federal statutes and in, in a lot of cases the state statutes and the laws in place really haven't made room for digital health care. And it's all about you know in what circumstances can insurance and can you know more specifically the federal health care system, the Medicare system, pay for uh, health care services. We haven't figured that out yet, but uh, one thing Congress did do was provide lots of flexibility uh, uh, during the pandemic, at least, to provide reimbursement for, for digital health. Mm-hmm. And that's true for live audio video conversations that you have with your physicians. Uh, but it's also true for you know remote patient monitoring and other aspects of, of digital health. So, um, you know, we we're talking about uh, being able to adopt those things really quickly during the pandemic. The question as we go into 2022 is what happens to those temporary capabilities right. and those temporary allowances in federal law in particular uh, for digital health services and for digital health modalities. And um, that will be a major question for us uh, as, as we try and grapple with this stuff because it costs money and uh, you have to make important policy trade-offs uh, in Congress. We think it can happen, uh, but uh, I'm telling you, we, you know, in 2022, it will come up uh, very quickly early on, uh, and we will have to deal with it uh, for sure. Absolutely. Now we mentioned some of the gaps created by COVID-19, and our members are some of the companies filling those gaps. In the U.S., we have companies like Motion Mobs, who built the COVID-19 contact tracing app for the state of Alabama, and Jesse Health, who created an online marketplace for health services that allows patients to find the option perfect for them. Their marketplace includes health professionals, products, and services, all tailored to the patient, who then reports their symptoms before being connected to relevant care and service options. So when we talk about these small app developers and what they do during the pandemic and have done throughout it, what does the current policy landscape look like and what can we expect to see in the future when it comes to rules and regulations being implemented or in some cases lifted? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that was really we were really fortunate to see uh, even before the pandemic was uh, the Health and Human Services Department, the federal government, uh, started to provide for the reimbursement of virtual modalities. Uh, there are what the uh, what HHS and the rest of the world calls uh, uh, CPT codes, and this is kind of what dictates whether or not Medicare is going to pay uh, for a given service or, or a given uh, product. And when HHS proposed in 2018 to adopt a new code for remote patient monitoring, that was a sea change and that was the beginning of a major shift, I think, in in the Medicare system. Medicare matters so much because it's the biggest payer in the United States. It's um, it's, uh, around a trillion dollars and uh, and it sets the tone. As as Morgan, our our president, likes to say, uh, folks that develop software in this space develop it in general around the CPT codes. Uh, So it's a central development um, I mentioned earlier that there are a bunch of flexibilities in place that that help reimburse for other aspects like live audio and video, um, but that's generally the, the landscape right now is that uh, HHS does reimburse for some of this stuff, but there's still some progress to be made, uh, and the Medicare system ultimately has to do better about uh, paying for, for quality and value rather than just the number of services, and, and that's a that's a really big challenge that we also have to tackle. 
And when we look at the health space, um, in the EU we see a lot of similarities to the privacy patchwork that you see in the uh, US and we're, we're sort of beginning to build. Um, what is the impact on the health space, especially when it comes to COVID in the EU? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting challenge in, in the European Union. I, I might uh, rely on Morgan and Anna as well uh, to help me sort of flesh out the details of this. But, you know, uh, in general, you've got a patchwork of health systems. And while uh, mHealth apps are not inherently constrained by borders, the patchwork of health laws across the EU often holds them back. Meanwhile, you've got a privacy law in the EU that's across the member states. So I wonder if, uh, Morgan, if, if you could uh, jump in and provide a little further background or Anna on, on that too. Sure. Well, um, well, creating a pan-European approach to healthcare does present quite a challenge uh, in Europe because health policies are not an EU competence as such. Um, it's really a prerogative of the member states and this becomes particularly complex um, when for policy making. So, for example, member states' approaches to have healthcare providers are paid for their services to patients. This differs completely. Um, depending where you're in France or Germany or in Denmark. So this affects business models of, um, of well, any providers and health services, including our members. So this, um, these different approaches to health, um, healthcare governance across EU member states creates one of the biggest disadvantage for companies offering health uh, solutions in EU. There's not really a single market for digital health products or services, and this, this is something we're trying to raise awareness on. Um, but there are some solutions uh, that are uh, being put forward to bridge those gaps. I don't know if Anna, you want to uh, to go over some of these. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I also want to say that, especially in light of COVID-19, you really noticed how um, a common health policy would have been beneficial for the European Union because it's an issue that is best addressed as a community. And so the, the EU is taking some steps um, to bridge those gaps, especially currently they're focusing on the safe processing of sensitive health information, um, for example, with the um, common European health data space, which if they pass that, it would make it possible to exchange health data freely and safely across all of Europe, um, which is particularly important for some of our members who are um, active in many of these markets. And um, also the Artificial Intelligence Act covers some of um, mHealth applications. And then we also have the Data Governance Act, which is part of the EU's data strategy. And with that act, the commission intends to boost the development of trustworthy data sharing systems, which are also particularly important in the health sector because it's sensitive information. And so as policymakers become more aware of these opportunities, the EU is kind of continuing to pick up these competencies and taking steps to address the challenges. Absolutely. Well, I, I heard the word patchwork <laughs> in there a lot, um, you know, in the health context in the EU. So, of course, I have to think about the privacy patchwork uh, that Niels mentioned before uh, in the United States. Um, so unlike the EU, we do not have one piece of legislation related to privacy like like the EU had with GDPR. So that companies at least would kind of know what to expect. Um, and we've said time and time again, this is the year of privacy. <laughs> I think we said it like in 2019 and 2020, 2021. But what can we say about 2022? You know, what, what will the impact of a state-by-state -state privacy patchwork look like versus just that one piece of federal legislation for the US and our EU members? Because we have people that do business in, in all of these places. 
Um, so, so what's what's the impact of that on on kind of a global scale? Well, that's that's what's uh, what we've got our eye on. I mean, that's one of the main issues we're watching in in 2022. So, like you said, there's a there's a growing state patchwork, and you could have even said that 2021 was uh, the year of privacy because for the first time ever, we had a, a, another state jump in and enact a general privacy law, a privacy law of general applicability. Um, in a state outside of California, and that was that was Virginia, and then Colorado. So we have now we have three states that have enacted laws that, uh, for in the case of Virginia and Colorado, they look really similar, but they have key differences that mean uh, that if you want to do business in both Virginia and and Colorado, like a lot of our member companies are going to be looking to do, or they'll have clients that um, want to be able to have customers and, and, and clients of their own in these states that they have to start thinking about how they're going to design their compliance programs to fit both of those models, even though they're, like I said, very, very similar. Uh, and then on top of that, if you've got California residents that, that you're on, uh, um, on which you're processing data and collecting data about them, then you're starting to think about, you know, how am I going to comply with that as well? And then add GDPR to that if you have EU subjects that, that you, either the, that your clients are, are processing data on or your uh processing data on yourself. So those are all questions that our member companies are going to be asking early next year. Uh, they're already asking those questions. We had our uh, mini AppCon last week that we uh, um, that we hosted where we had a virtual fly-in and, and met with a bunch of uh, um, congressional staff sharing some of the concerns, which were, you know, if, if states continue to uh, adopt new uh, new. Uh, privacy frameworks that look slightly different, even if they are pretty pretty similar, like is the case with Virginia, Colorado, we're going to see growing uh, compliance challenges and sort of a new barriers to entry, new barriers to reaching uh, the markets that our member companies are trying to reach. And so um, that will be an issue. I think all of our member companies care quite a bit about privacy. They want to make sure that what they're doing is respecting the expectations of their customers and the customers of their clients, and they want to be able to do it in a way that complies with uh, federal, state, and international laws and, and norms. And so it's all about balancing between the, the best way to uh, require compliance and uh, enabling smaller companies to compete effectively with, with bigger competitors. And so um, all that to say uh, that will increase pressure on, on Congress to enact a, a bipartisan privacy law. Uh, one of the questions that people ask me a lot is, are we going to see a federal privacy law in 2022? <laughs> uh, and um, if that's a hard one to answer. We're not betting any money. We're not betting any money. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. Just using wishes. I wouldn't yeah. recommend <laughs> betting any money on it, um, although I'm sure there's pools out there. Um, but uh, it, I certainly hope so. I'll put it that way. Um, and uh, we will we will be advocating for uh, for that to happen. That's really interesting, Grant. Maybe maybe we can also toss it to to Anna to look a bit at the EU because there's a lot of crossover between sort of what what the EU has been doing with GDPR as inspired CCPA in in California, and sort of Anna, what 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 can we expect to see in 2022 in the EU privacy landscape? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question because even though the EU now has GDPR in force, um, businesses are still struggling to implement it. There is a lot of enforcement kind of discrepancies across the member states. Um, so I think we will see developments on more guidance on how to implement GDPR and how um, privacy um, regulators will enforce it next year. Um, and then another huge issue is um, the privacy shield for our members because Privacy Shield was a framework that small businesses could use to transfer data from the EU to the US and vice versa. And since that has been invalidated, our members can't rely on it anymore. And the other me uh, mechanisms that exist are not practically, uh, practically feasible for most small businesses. So hopefully the EU and the US can agree to a new framework and hopefully in like the near future, because <laughs> it is really bad for our members. <laughs> um, and then I touched on this earlier also, there is the um, Data Governance Act, which has some privacy aspects as well, because the EU is now trying to create kind of a standardized framework for um, tools and techniques to encourage more data use. Um, and obviously that data use will have to be privacy compliant, um, but they want to do this to encourage kind of research and data sharing for businesses and um, business to government data sharing and cover all of these different um, aspects of having data flow more freely across the EU. And then in our favorite piece of legislation of the year, the Digital Markets Act um, <laughs> also has a privacy aspect because some of its provisions um, mandate sideloading, which would mean that you can download apps from third party app stores on your phone. Um, and because those app stores are likely to not have the same kind of security measures and mechanisms that the main app stores have um it increases the risks that users would download malicious apps that can expose your data to actors that do not have your best interests at heart yeah absolutely um and like caitlin i hear one thing in one policy area and immediately think of another issue um and so related to sort of the dma and sideloading um you know as we're talking about privacy state bills um i'm sort of thinking about certain state platform bills and how they could also really impact privacy in a similar way um and so as we start to talk about platforms and the way the us and eu governments are looking to regulate them what, uh, Graham, are some of the privacy implications of platform-related rules? Yeah, the, there are a bunch of state bills that were introduced in 2021. There were 14 states that, that, whose legislatures considered bills that would, in some form or fashion, make it illegal for the platform to require somebody who's distributing an app to use the, the app store that the platform provides. and. So, you know, th these are bills that were sort of, you know, where did they come from? They come from, um, mainly it's a couple of companies, Epic Games, Spotify, Match Group. It's like the very largest companies that sell uh, digital products and services on the software platforms. Mm -hmm. The software platforms being, you know, the Apple App Store, the, the Google Play Store. And, you know, the, the main issue that they have is they want to be able to uh, distribute on the platform using an alternative method so that they don't have to pay for the platform services. Right. Um, the, so the problem with the method by which they're trying to achieve that is that, um, you know, uh, in the case of Apple, they've created a, a, a walled garden that uh, disallows sideloading of, of software and that um, has reduced the, the risk surfaces for malware, for spyware, uh, for all of the things that, um, you want to make sure don't get downloaded onto your device 
accidentally, which is what happens in a lot of cases with sort of behavioral um, engineering attacks. Uh, and all of the malware that is uh, implanted on, on mobile devices has to be done on Android dev devices because Android does allow sideloading, but the catch is that Android says by, you know, by default, you can't sideload, you gotta go into your settings. And then once you go into your settings, you can say uh, from a trusted source, from one source at mm -hmm. a time, you can say, okay, I'm, I'm going to allow sideloading. Uh, so that really limits the, the risk but it's still there, and any malware that, is, that ever gets um, implanted on a mobile device, um, with some very small exceptions by uh, state actors, um, uh, you know, is, is on an Android device. So if you are you know, basically taking away that really secure option right. for, for developers, that doesn't, that doesn't help us, that hurts us. And you know, the, the companies that tend to benefit from uh, you know the the bills that are being introduced are the ones that are really big and and don't have to worry about um, you know trust that consumers might have uh, in the in the marketplace um, because they've already got a, a a trusted brand they've already got everybody knows who Spotify is right. um, everybody knows the dating apps that Match Group provides uh, and so. <clears throat> You know, they, they would benefit because they wouldn't have to pay anything um, and they would get a free distribution model, but it would hurt the smaller companies because they would suffer from reduced consumer trust and, um, you know, making illegal the services that the small companies are sort of paying for with the, with the registration fee. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about in the EU? Like, Morgan, maybe you can tell us in a little. Yeah, the... sure. Well, we, we <laughs> well, this is a debate that's happening um, in Brussels as well because we have a new law, the Digital Markets Act, uh, proposed by the European Commission, um, end of last year, in 2020, um, that's being discussed at the moment in, within the different institutions. And this Digital Markets Act is um, a target large platforms that act as gatekeepers to online markets mm -hmm. um, to create fairer and more contestable environment for business users of those platforms. Um, the thing is, is that, so it, 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 it targets platforms that go from cloud providers but also to app stores um, and therefore uh, has an impact on all my members because we, uh, they use app stores. Mm -hmm. And um, so what is difficult in this situation is that they impose a number of obligations on those platforms, a bit of a, a list of do's and don'ts, including sideloading. And as Graham mentioned, this has some big implications for our members um, do not have the resources uh, to uh, to be known and big brands to uh, to be downloaded from the from from the web directly, and they need to go through the app stores. So. Uh, what we're seeing here on top of the pure side loading obligation that are more or less the same that what Graham uh, described, there's also some, um, I would say, amendments to the regulation proposed by the European Parliament to make the services provided by the app stores to make them available for free, which means that um, app stores will not be able to monetize their stores anymore, mm. which would mean potentially disinvest from app stores and that would be absolutely catastrophic for our members right. who rely on the thousands of APIs, who relied on the uh, IP protection they will get from there um, and, uh, and the privacy and security uh, built-in features and so on. So 
Um, at the moment, this bill is being discussed um, within the institutions. They will negotiate a, a common position early 2022. And so this is something that we're following um, very closely. Absolutely. And, and what about the FTC? Are we going to see any involvement from them? That is a good question. I, I think that a lot of <laughs> I think a lot of U.S. policymakers are looking at what's going on in Europe and the Digital Markets Act, and they're taking some cues. And, mm-hmm. and some of what Europe has proposed in, in the not too distant past is showing up in, in Congress, Congress, and, and in legislatures around the country. So. Um, the FTC is no exception, though. The Federal Trade Commission now is led by um, she, uh, a new chairwoman who um, recently took the helm and has been, you know, laid out a very sort of wide-ranging and aggressive approach to, um, especially competition, because the Federal Trade Commission has two missions: it's to protect its consumer protection on one half of the commission; the other half is um, competition. And on the competition side, um, uh, Chairwoman Khan, uh, before she was at the FTC, was uh, a counsel at the uh, House Judiciary Committee Antitrust Subcommittee, where you know she co-authored a report, basically outlining um, a couple of things that really are very similar to what the Digital Markets Act would do. It's a sort of a non-discrimination regime, and so, um, and you know, and, and she's indicated that with the Federal Trade Commission. They might not, you know, want or need to wait for Congress to act, uh, you know, under uh, a new interpretation of the FTC law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they might have the, the ability to write rules under the competition half and so start regulating the competition um, uh, in the marketplace uh, that, uh, that uh, software platforms uh, are, are, are a part of. And so that is uh, that's something that we will definitely need to watch closely, um, and uh, if they can get a fifth commissioner, that will that will probably happen pretty soon after the beginning of of 2022. There's a there's one more commissioner that has to be confirmed by the by the Senate, and right. that's still hanging out there. But once that happens, um, I think I think it's true. We could see some FTC involvement uh, on that front. Yeah, for sure. And and I also think sort of um, when we talk about antitrust or we often put these two uh, um, sort of topics together when we talk about antitrust. Um, so it wouldn't really be a policy look ahead without um, yeah. sort of addressing the second piece of that, which would be SEPs um, and sort of the global SEP landscape. Yeah. Um, so before we're joined by Stephen for a look into the future of sort of UK SEPs um, and get an update there. Um, Graham, what are we seeing from the global standard setting organizations like IEEE? What can we expect for 2022 um, sort of in this SEP space? Well, standard central patents is really interesting. And it's a little bit different from the platform situation because you're talking about a patent that was granted uh, to somebody and, and, the, and the patent owner decides voluntarily they are going to have it adopted as part of a standard and as part of that agreement. Because uh, usually there's like sort of a competition to see which technology is best. Right. You sort of shortcut that process when you get adopted as, and declared as essential as part of a standard. I think that's what that's missed a lot in this whole debate. Um, so it's a it's a um, it's a consideration that really you know weighs in favor of enforcement of the antitrust laws against companies that have SEPs and uh, make a make a commitment to license on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. And then decide that they're not going to do that later right. on down the road. <laughs> so that's why you know IEEE is one of the standard setting organizations that has developed a you know, patent policy that describes 
norms and sort of best practices for licensing uh, that are the, that are part of the FRAND commitment, that are part of the commitment that an SEP owner makes. And part of it is, you know, I'm not going to get an injunction if I have a willing licensee. I am going to make my, you know, SEP license is available on, on, uh, to anybody who's willing to, to pay me a friend rate. Um, and that has drawn a lot of ire, a lot of opposition from uh, SEP holders who really just want to monetize their patents after getting them adopted as, as essential to a standard. So that's been you know, very contentious for a lot of folks. And IEEE has been defending this 2015 patent policy update that they made which does add a bunch more clarity and, and, and more content to the FRAND commitment. And 52 of our member companies um, across the globe joined on this effort to back up the IEEE's 2015 policy update. It sounds like an arcane issue, but it's, it has huge consequences. If, if IEEE backs down, then other, patent, you know, other uh, standard setting organizations might, might go with it. And, so it's a really important outcome, and um, we we are really you know hopeful that that they'll just hold the line on on the 2015 uh, statement. Um, the other thing I'll mention that the Department of Justice just issued was a request for comment on yeah. the joint policy statement between Department of Justice and the Department of Commerce, U.S. Patent and Trade Office, and, and NIST. Those agencies are running a, a comment process on a new draft policy statement that says basically just it's a much better description of the law than the old statement and it says you know if you have an SCP getting an injunction is a rare uh, remedy and it usually shouldn't be granted um, and that's a that's a really important policy statement that we're trying to get as many people as possible to pay attention to and yeah. to comment on and the comments are, are of course do January 5th. Yeah, of course, 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, ridiculous. Um, what about um, what about on the on the EU side maybe Morgan or Anna if you if you want to just give us a, a quick update there. Um, um, yeah, the EU of course is also getting involved in this issue. Um, we've advocated for them to get involved in this um, for a long time because there's not really any clarity around the issue. Um, and so now hopefully early next year, maybe January. Um, so they will be launching a public consultation um, around a legislative framework for um, SEPs. And because anybody can respond to these consultations, um, small businesses will also have the opportunity to weigh in. And of course, we will participate and kind of ask for what it is that we want the EU's SEP framework to include. So you'll hear more about this next year, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, talking about uh, steps consultation, uh, we have Stephen. Um, you're joining us to chat about what's happening in the UK. Um, this this consultation on steps uh, as well um, that is launched by the IPO. Can you tell us a bit more about it? What can we expect to see there, and um, what will the the impact in the coming year? Yeah, sure. So, hi everyone. Um, so, a bit of context. It's been a busy time for steps in the UK, and the reason for that is that. Earlier in the year, the UK government launched an innovation strategy, which basically outlined a strategic plan for how the government was going to support UK innovation and fund businesses to, you know, invent, be innovative and boost the economy, particularly in the regions outside of London and the South East. And IP was an important part of that. 
And as part of that process, the IPO, which is the Intellectual Property Office in the UK, is uh, researching the issue of SEPs. Now, what they've just launched this week on Monday is what's called a call for views. So they're effectively asking businesses to share their experiences of SEPs. They're asking them for their views, their opinions, and they're trying to get an idea of what the issue looks like before they move on to potentially making legislation further down the process. Um, what's quite interesting from our point of view is that where ACT, the App Association, fits into this is that we're trying to ensure that SMEs have their voice heard in this process because SEPs in the UK is an issue that not a lot of SMEs have perhaps heard of or been impacted by yet, but it's something that could be important to them in, in the future. So we're out there promoting it as an issue and making sure that all these SMEs can have their voice heard as part of this call for views. And we've got until, I think kind of it's the 1st of March, isn't it? To, um, to, to yeah, time. Yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna be gathering evidence, which sounds like a long time, but isn't Frana, who's got to write it. Yes. <laughs> um, so we're gonna be encouraging um, SMEs to participate in it, we'll be participating in it, and just trying to raise awareness as well. And what we're hoping the outcome of this is going to be is that the call for views is going to demonstrate that this is an important issue for SMEs in the UK and that um, the government will decide to take the next stage, which is consulting on legislation. And what we'd like that legislation to say is that it's going to be fairer and more transparent for SMEs to access standard essential patents, which again should make it easier for them to innovate and boost the UK economy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's uh, So it sounds like it's been a busy year for SMEs uh, across the globe uh, in 2021. Not going to let up in 2022. Sounds like we're going to hit the ground running, which is sort of exciting. Um, you know, stay tuned on, on future episodes of Tech Swamp to make sure that you're staying uh, involved and that you're helping us get the word out about all the stuff that you guys are doing, um, given that you, all, you our wonderful listeners, are in fact the SMEs uh, that we're talking about and that we need to, uh, to help us... Uh, advocate here. So anyway, um, Graham and Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on this final episode of 2021. It's been pretty great. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And now it's time for Random Identifier. Yeah, and it's a uh, holiday themed. Anna, you're up first. Oh, okay. Um, so <laughs> so mine, my holiday random identifier is my advent calendar, which I think are a little more common in the EU than they are in the US. So for those of you who don't know, it's like a little calendar and you open a little door every day and you get like an item. And so usually mine are chocolate, little chocolates basically, and it's kind of the same milk chocolate every day, just in different shapes. Um, but this year I have an exciting one that is a different tea bag every day. And they're oh. like holiday themed teas and they have really, you know, made this December much more enjoyable for me. Yeah, that's very cozy. Yeah, yeah. it's very cozy. Awesome. And like every single tea has been spectacular. So I, like I kind of want to buy like more of the calendar even when it's not holiday time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, 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 like I want the tea. Yeah. And that's like, sometimes that's the goal. Of right, that you find a product. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how about How about you, Brad? Of course. Well, it wouldn't be my random identifier without talking about music. I agree. So I would just choose my favorite Christmas song, which yes. would be Run Run Rudolph by Chuck Berry. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's great it's guitar. Fun. It's a blues it's rock yeah. song. Totally. Like, totally. Yeah. Can't go wrong. And all the assorted covers by like Keith Richards. Just great. Yeah. Big fan. That's great. This is a fun fact about you. I'm glad to know this. Yeah. 
Well, you're welcome. Thanks. And, uh, well, Niels, what's your holiday-themed random identifier? Yeah, everyone's talking about Christmas, but in in the Netherlands, we have uh, St. Nicholas, which is much bigger. Uh. So I actually already celebrated it on the the 5th. Uh, of, of December. In Belgium, it's the 6th of December. Yeah, I know, it's a sixth. Happy belated so, uh, that day. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's, it's only in the Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany. I learned this yesterday. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's really sort of the same holiday. You, you'll notice the, 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 the similarity between uh, Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Um, it or Two Town. Two Town, as it, I call him. Exactly. <laughs> So it all roots from the same thing, but um, yeah. So I actually already celebrated. So oh, nice. I'm off. So you're already feeling festive. You're I, feeling way more festive than any of us. That's true. Yeah. Post festive. <laughs> the come down. Yeah. The come down. <laughs> the Christmas come down. Um, Caitlin, what about you? Um, okay, so like Brad, I'm going to talk about real quick favorite Christmas song, um, which is simply having a wonderful Christmas time. And the first time I ever heard the song, I was like in the third or fourth grade and I, I liked it so much that I said to my parents in the car, like when we were on our way to wherever we were going, I was like, oh, I really want this song played at my funeral. Mm-hmm. And my dad, without missing a beat, was like, what if you don't die around Christmas? And I also didn't miss a beat, and I said, play the song at my funeral. Yeah. So every time I hear Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time, it makes me really happy. I'm thinking about Christmas, but then also thinking about, like, you know, 10-year-old Caitlin, 8-year-old Caitlin being like, love this song so much. Please. My first thought is to play yeah, this at banger funeral. at my funeral. <laughs> Very strange. Uh, yeah, interesting yeah. perspective. <laughs> <laughs> potatoes um specifically my mom right potatoes are great everyone loves potatoes i hope um and um uh for me the holidays mean um the one time of year that my mom makes um arguably the greatest potatoes in the world um they're these like super lemony delicious greek potatoes um and i have never been able to make them the same way as my mom and i have recently learned why um and there are two answers um uh, one is that her secret ingredient, which I'm going to share with the world right now, is wishbone <gasps> Italian dressing. Oh. That's the secret to these potatoes. I thought you were going to say wishbone the dog. I know you would think, <laughs> right? But the real secret is that the only reason that they taste like this is because she cooks, she roasts them with the lamb. So the lamb is actually mm. where the wishbone oh. dressing is. That makes a whole difference. And then mm. it all kind of gets melds together. Um, so oh my God, you guys. These potatoes, I like literally can confirm. About like we start, it start like December first. I just start thinking about them. <laughs> like potato season. I will <laughs> ask her. I really will ask her. The problem is like what I've now learned is that for them to be this delicious potato ness, um, they uh, they have to be made with the lamb. So that's like the secret. But maybe I'll just get my mom to roast a lamb for the association. The and then <laughs> anybody who would like to eat some, please good. just yeah. come over and eat it. Um, obviously, if you're a vegetarian, you don't have to. But I would suggest, my friend is a vegan, and she literally eats these potatoes every year, <laughs> even though she technically does not eat. You're putting her on blast right now. Right. <laughs> she knows. She knows. I, tell, I tell everyone, because she does that, and also my mom makes, um, she makes these twice a year, but they're stuffed grape leaves. Um, and my mom's are just like so good. And my friend will eat like half a pot and so I make my mom make extra every year. Anyway, that's not the point. Um, 
So yeah, potatoes. Um, we're gone. Take us home. <laughs> uh, what yeah. is your final, final random identifier? Well, to get back to uh, St. Nicholas on the yes. 6th of, of December. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what, <laughs> It's definitely the 6th. It's definitely the 6th. And then, so what, what we normally, because let's not forget, this is for kids normally. So, but yeah, we put... Um, Cookies, uh, we have to put the shoes outside mm-hmm. and then we put cookies and, and oranges. And walnuts. And for the donkey, obviously. For the donkey. Exactly. Not reindeer. No. And uh, so. For us, it's a horse. So we have the Oh cookies. my gosh! <laughs> Why do you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's almost like this would be easier if there was just one uniformed approach exactly. to Christmas in the, in the EU. <laughs> we need standards. <laughs> we need standards for the holidays, just like we need for technology. Apparently, Germany and Belgium is the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we agree on many things. And uh, well, just to say that normally we have those well, those cookies are called like the spiculos, and um, they have those really good ones in Belgium with chocolate topping. And mm-hmm. I was flying to DC on the sixth, and I went there. I was like, I'm gonna buy a bunch of those, and there was a shortage <gasps> of, oh, no! of chocolates in in Belgium. Oh my and gosh! And I that got me really concerned, <laughs> and I was like. I can't even, like, if chocolate is there in Belgium, then we, yeah, I don't know what to do. Yeah, a chocolate crisis in Belgium, like, that's uh, a national oh, crisis. At least Actually, those, maybe a public emergency. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. World is in. yeah. Wow. So that's it, I want to share. My, oh. Yeah, so, I got alternatives, but yeah, so. Supply chain. Yeah, supply Get chain. Getting the best of everyone. So this is, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, so 2021, no chocolate <laughs> for Christmas. No chocolate for you. And with that, um, that's it for Text Mom. Um, if you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. And we have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com to search for Text Mom. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate Five stars only, please. And that's all for today, folks. So thank you for listening to this episode of Text Bye. 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 Happy New Year. <laughs>